Welcome to Australian Hunger, I'm your host Ben, back after a little bit of a break, and <laughs> I'd love to say, oh hey, I went on holidays, or hey, there was some sort of um, family emergency, but like, I don't really have a reason to be honest, I just, it's, it's really bizarre, I just really wasn't motivated to do the podcast, and it's not like, oh, I was doing other things, it, I was, I, I had the time, I just didn't do it, um, I don't know what else to say, but um, hopefully uh, going on in regular episodes i've recorded an episode for later this week and i'm hoping to line up a few interviews for the weeks ahead but um yeah to the limited number of people who listen um apologies (laughs) so today i've got an interview with daniel hay from the dark third a new zealand band um sort of a one of those bands that's very difficult to describe um combines prog um interesting instrumentation uh interesting musical structures uh they released the album even as the light grows last year but they're one of those bands which really appealed to me and i thought i'd really want to interview them i actually interviewed him quite a while ago um but fortunately this because you know the album was released last year this interview is kind of evergreen but um daniel uh, apologies for the delay <laughs> but regardless here it is and the songs that i played during the interview are these things are not inherent and the regressor. This is Daniel Hay from the Dark Third. Let's go back to the beginning. How did the band start? Well, we kind of have like three different dates that we count as the start of the band, depending on how you interpret it. Um, but Tim on drums and Dennis, who's currently playing bass and I all went to high school together and we kind of bonded in uh, sort of 2011, 2012 on a shared love of Porcupine Tree and Dream Theater, not Dream Theater for me. I thought they were terrible, but the other two liked them. Um, And sort of, you know, as you do in high school, you try and start bands every five minutes. And uh, we sort of went through a hundred incarnations of various cover bands and things before um, finally Dennis and I, started uh, writing some original material which would five years later become even as the light grows uh at this point i think dennis kind of lost a bit of interest and um i was struggling to get him and the group that we were with at the time to sort of make that jump from being a bedroom cover band to a real band so i sort of broke that apart got tim back who at the point that point had quit the band (laughs) um and reformed a new band which was a four-piece and that was sort of the first serious um, band that played on the original music. Um, even though we were using a bunch of Dennis's ideas that he had contributed, he wasn't part of that. Then uh, that existed for about two years before we had a bit of a reshuffle around when the album was about to come out. And due to our bassist, uh, Kristen, moving to Wellington, we used that as an opportunity for Dennis to come back into the band. Um, so I guess... The real official band started around 2015 when we started playing live shows um, as a four-piece, yeah. Mm. And where did the name The Dark Third come from? So the name officially is robbed from a band called Pure Reason Revolution. Um, It's the title of their first album. Um, But it has a sort of host of meanings for us that we thought, you know, because it has multiple meanings that correlate with multiple sides of our music, it was a good name. Uh, the name that uh, they used for that album and that we originally came up with is to do with the state of dreaming. And that's what a lot of Even As The Light Grows is about. And uh, the dark third referring to the one third of your life that you spent asleep. 
but there also is a link with the dark triad, which is a um, sort of psychological concept, which ties probably more into some of our newer material. Um, uh, and I guess it just sort of fitted the theme. It's kind of a bit abstract as a name, which is where we're trying to root our sound. So you mentioned a couple of bands, um, not for you, Dream Theater, but uh, you know, obviously the kind of big progressive rock bands, um, including um, sort of rocky, medley bands, including Porcupine Tree. But um, what really comes through in your music is a bunch of other bands, including some sort of post-rock um, and some more... I don't know what you'd call them, but bands like KO Dot. Talk a little bit about how they came into the picture for you. So I genuinely would say the biggest influence on my sound in terms of trying to bring in the saxophone and the violin um, was a local New Zealand group called Mice on Stilts, who in turn are huge admirers of KO Dot. Um, we used to play a lot of shows with them and go to their live shows in Auckland and they played as a sort of seven or eight piece chamber rock group, quite rooted in post-rock and the instrumentation, but the way that they used space and different sounds, I absolutely adored. And they also used sort of that chaotic sound that Toby Driver uses quite a lot um, as far as the kickoff and the guitars and the layering and, and the saxophones. Um, and, Although I think our songwriting comes from a progressive rock sort of school of thought, a lot of the structures are quite progressive rock, I wanted the sounds to be a bit different, like the actual instrumentation we used, because I think progressive rock, although there are some very talented songwriters, some of the guitar tones they use, some of the arrangements are quite uninspired, sort of uh, in terms of the generic guitar-based drum setup. So I quite liked the idea of coming from a, a more post-rock, texture-oriented um, approach to the the layering of the sound and that was a big part of our decision to bring in saxophone and violin for the album going more to the 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 music side of things actually the actual sort of album side of things i guess you would say when did you start working on this sort of browsing through your facebook page it seems like it's been um in in the works for kind of a while yeah so it's it was officially released sort of it was august last year but um, the songwriting was started in mid-2013, and I would say was finished by the end of 2014. Um, so the songwriting was out of the way a long time ago, and it was really, I decided rather than make it sort of my solo project, I wanted to get a band together, focus on playing live stuff first, and then move towards recording, and that was a very low, long and slow process. Um, and so we're kind of at the point now in which we, we've got a ton of material written for probably at least three albums now ahead of this one. So it's there's a bit of a lag between the stuff that was written and the stuff that was recorded. Um, but the yeah the music on Even As The Light Grows uh, definitely calls back to the early days of the band. And I purposefully kind of left it. I didn't change anything after sort of 2015 because I thought – if I changed it, I'm going to change it to my current taste, whereas I kind of want this to reflect who I was at age 17, 18 uh, when I wrote it, rather than just you know making all of our albums sound the same. Mm-hmm. How did you approach the writing of this material? Uh, with absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, yeah, this, it's very much uh, quite a, you know, a bunch of ideas that don't really have much songwriting, you know, theory behind them. I think uh, Dennis's contributions are a big part of this album, uh, although, and thinking about some of our more recent stuff that we've been playing live and writing, uh, most of that's all my composition. Often the ideas would start with something that Dennis has written on guitar. He'd just send it to me, and then I'd run with it. Um, like the song Erewhon, Dennis is credited as a co-writer, but his writing is really the first sort of eight seconds. That was what he wrote. And then the rest, I just sort of heard that first eight seconds, and I was like, nah, I know what I want to come next. And I finished an entire song out of it pretty much with no extra input from him after that. Um, but it kind of – it has a bit of a – he has a very distinctive way of writing guitar riffs that I think come through on a few of the songs on this album. And uh, that definitely influenced the way I wrote it. But it was – sort of a process of learning as I went on. Um, I didn't 
really know what I wanted to do in terms of structuring. Um, so there's kind of a, an interesting balance of uniqueness because I had no idea what I was doing, but also, um, you know, the, there will be an interesting change as, as our music progresses because I think we've developed as a group and I've developed as a songwriter since then. Mm, um, obviously, this isn't really applicable to the, the current material, but in, in what ways do you think you've grown since then? I think uh, in terms of the songwriting, I think I'm focusing a little bit more on uh, the vocal melodies part of it because when I was writing back then I was quite sort of quite insecure about my own voice uh tried to keep it really within a tight range um because I don't have you know the traditional high end that a lot of singers in the style of music have I kind of tried to bury my vocals a bit whereas since then I've been writing material that I think the vocal lines are a lot more prominent um I think song structure wise we've compacted a bit there are still longer pieces but it's you know um a little bit more concise and i think there's a little bit of some of the the things that dennis was bigger on than than me being the instrumental sections um i'm writing fewer of those although having said that with dennis being back in the band there's no reason he can't contribute in the future um we just haven't really got to that point at the moment I think you might have sort of already answered this question, but but talk a little bit about why you wanted it to be, um, sort of have a broader array of instrumentation. Yeah, so basically I wanted it to um, have a unique sound, and having a unique sound is important for any band, but it's especially important for a debut record because people will notice you if you've got a unique sound. And... I remember when I when we were sort of starting up the project, I was getting big into into black metal and shoegaze, um, as well as sort of my past of getting into progressive rock. And I had this sort of idea of sort of combining the two, and that comes through in the songwriting. But we went full out on it with the the instrumentation. Um, some of the ideas worked, some of them kind of did. Um, I think one of the most unique ideas that we had was the way that we incorporated saxophones as a layering instrument so there's no keyboard on the album at all there's there's piano but it's a it's a proper digital a proper grand piano not a digital piano and all of the the sort of textures are done by sampling uh live saxophone and live violin and then sort of looping that and often you know recording three or four of the same line and then panning them and creating sort of this atmosphere of saxophone drones which um, creates quite an interesting texture, and I think that is a point of difference. Whereas, with you know, in rock music in general, you hear a hundred thousand bands with the guitar, bass, keyboards set up. And to be honest, I think I've got a bit bored of guitars as a sound. Um, so you know, throwing in a bunch of extra instruments to sort of diversify the um, the range of sounds was definitely something I wanted to do. Obviously, we're sort of going back a little bit in terms of the, the writing in some of these songs. Um, but I noticed that Dreams of Lesser Men is structured by movements, um, something that you don't necessarily see that much in sort of rock music or e- even a lot of sort of prog music. Talk, talk a little bit why you approached that song in that way. It's It's kind of funny. I don't think it was ever a conscious... I, I didn't start writing the song with the intention of making it into four movements. I just sort of noted it and then split it up. To, um, in a way, the, the noting it in movements is, a, is almost a bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek tribute to some, you know, the cl- classic prog cliche of your long song being in different movements. But um, it definitely, it definitely has those four different sections. And uh, there was one recurring joke that the four sections uh, mirror the four sections of uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, and that the first and last are instrumental because the first and last in Space Odyssey are pretty much all silent. Um, I'm not sure how seriously we took that as a as a parallel, but um, yeah, it was uh, that was that song was very through composed. So um, basically, it started with with Dennis had. Most of Dennis's ideas are in that first three minutes, and he had three or four riffs that I sort of combined into a kind of overture kind of thing. And then I basically just composed the rest from from there on out, and it kind of gives it this 
feel of a journey you know it's it's starting in one place and taking you to another place which is something i like in longer songs i think i prefer a song to feel like it's heading to a destination rather than uh sort of you know being like a mush of shorter songs thrown together what one of the sort of i think parts of the album was sort of felt the most personal were aspects when the piano was particularly prominent and aspects where the vocals kind of were particularly prominent, especially when they were paired. Um, talk about sort of those sections and how you approach kind of uh, um, piano and, and vocals as sort of more, I don't know whether they were personal, whether it's just something that came through. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I've always been a big fan of piano. I think it's, um, ever since I was very young, it's always been my favorite instrument, which is kind of ironic given how much rock guitar music I listen to. Um, but I've always felt that piano songs from, you know, rock bands uh, add a lot, you know, talking about bands like bands like Queen or Muse. But even, you know, going back to my early days, a band like My Chemical Romance would put in a couple of piano ballads on pretty much every on at least on their later records. And I always loved the intimacy that you get with a piano more than um several other instruments when you're trying to be intimate, for example. And I think the section in the center of, of Erewhon, for me, I I wanted to, to take a break from the sort of noisy beginning and endings of that song. And I also wanted to put in a section that uh, the that sort of subverted a lot of the, the genre norms for that, because I think Erewhon started as a song that very much took influence from a band like Elsist, um, to the point where we thought that we were ripping off the, we were ripping them off a bit too much. Um, and so I felt the right thing to do was to put in a section that Elsis would never do ever, which is a piano section with vocals, clear vocals, because Elsis's style is being very atmospheric. Um, but as far as trying to get my, the, the sort of intimacy and the emotions through, I think I definitely prefer that sort of solemn piano as well as a contrast to the heavier sections because, um, you know, dynamics are a big thing. Too much of soft can get boring, too much of loud can get boring. And I've, I've often found myself moving away from piano a bit and subconsciously, and I have to remind myself that it's, you know, something that I, I do enjoy greatly. Um, I play all the piano live, and I think even though there's been talks about me giving some of my guitar parts away, I think I'd always want to continue playing piano, even though it restricts my stage movements a lot. I want to talk a little bit about the um, ending of the album. Um, the sounds of the end of The Regressor um, sort of stand out, I think, in particular, because they're very artificial in a way that the rest of the album isn't necessarily. Um, talk a little bit about that part of the album. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of Easter eggs on that ending. Um, so the sounds at the end of The Regressor, are, they, they're pretty much all field recordings of... There's one enormous, the, the, the big sort of cavernous panned scraping sounds is actually a bunch of construction noise at Britomart Transport Centre in Auckland. Um, and then that was stretched and then reversed. Um, there's also sections of both of Arlika, me and Tim all playing saxophone at the same time. Of course, I can't play saxophone, so it's just a bunch of noise. Um, I guess the idea of that ending was it sort of, very chaos-esque. It sort of dissolves into chaos, and I wanted to have the sort of calming ending of the final track, Waking, sort of coming out underneath as a kind of release. Um, and yeah, I guess I guess there were there were many ways of going about creating this chaos, but I thought having a bunch of static and noise. There's actually another really interesting one um, that you can't quite hear well enough, but we were when we were recording guitar, we were playing around with um, a Vox AC30 that used to be my son Stiltz's, but I bought it off him during the um, the album recording. And we, when Tommy and I were doing guitar tracking, we discovered that if you put his, he, he received a text message while, whilst his phone was sitting on the amp and it made a bunch of weird buzzy noises and we thought it was hilarious. So we recorded him receiving a phone call um, and you can hear it really subtly, this sort of crackling this, you know, the AC30 gives some really beautiful sounds when you pretty much put anything through it. Um, so that's somewhere in the in the, the mess of the end of the regressor. Um, but yeah, it was basically trying to 
kind of almost mirror the start of the album. And in fact, there's there's a bunch of the drum parts from the start of the album uh, reappear. We sort of copied and pasted them at the end, um, you know, to try and have some kind of symmetry. Mm-hmm. And, and then Waking, um, sort of simple and short track, and then kind of goes somewhere a little bit different. Talk about that as well. Yeah, so I mean, I... I'd probably say that Waking is my favorite track on the album, but I, I will add that it's the only song I didn't write in that 2013-2014 era. There was another song that I originally had that kind of had the same idea. It was a short acoustic track. Um, but later on, I, I sort of wrote the beginning of Waking, and I just thought this is way better. And I trashed that song and replaced it. Um, and... There's actually an extended version of Waking with a, a second verse and the drums come back in um, that we've played live a couple of times. But the reason that isn't on the album is because we had already ch- recorded drums by the time I'd written the song and I just decided, nah, let's just leave the short version in. Um, it's, yeah, it has it has a sort of, there's that dreamy ending, which I quite like, um, sort of ending with that sort of, I suppose ethereal chord and guitar tone that we have at the end. Um, but to me, I think waking is epitomizes that sort of intimacy and the emotion that I'm trying to get through in some of the, the lyrics and the, the melodies on this album. And, you know, it fits as a kind of ending and a sort of calm after the storm of the regressor. And, yeah, I, I guess, you know, I think I, I am a bit biased and that it's, you know, recency bias and that I think that that's probably my favorite song on the album. Although I think Tim agrees with me on that. But, um, yeah, it's it's a way of ending the album. I've, you know, taking influence from several other albums that use that kind of, you know, coda track to finish a, a record, which I quite like as a form. I want to go to one of the other sides of the albums, the lyrics. How did you approach writing those? Yeah, so the lyrics were sort of tweaked over a few years. Most of them would have been um, written way back in, in high school for me. Um, I think when I'm uh, in terms of writing lyrics, I think I always will say that the melody is more important than the lyrics in terms of because you want you want the melody to be right. And if the lyrics don't fit the melody, I don't think you should change the melody to fit the lyrics. I should think you should change the lyrics to fit the melody. And it doesn't matter if you kind of lose a bit of meaning or your lyrics become a bit less clear. Um, I think that in terms of the emotions I'm trying to convey, it's the it's the actual music that, that does it more so than the lyrics. But... Having said that, I did spend a lot, a lot of time on the lyrics on this album, mostly because I always thought that my lyrics were quite bad, and I really, really wanted to make sure that they were at least passable. So I spent quite a bit of time sort of tweaking them over the years, um, uh, which is yeah one of the only things that I sort of changed after after that, you know, 2013, 2014. The, the music stayed pretty much exactly the same, but I did change the lyrics because, um, you know. I wrote them when I was in high school, so then obviously, you know, a bunch of them are a bit cringy at times, so I kept <laughs> kept tweaking them as they went along. And mm. I guess reason with how they came out, yeah. Mm. Why is night, sleep, dreaming, those kind of topics, I don't know, are they important to you in general? Why, why were they important on this album? So I suppose the, the dreaming, um, this album... If, if we're being literal is more of a discussion of depression and mental illness than anything to do with dreaming. But I quite enjoyed the idea of pushing dreams as a, as a kind of metaphor for escapism. Um, and particularly in, in a song like Erewhon. Um, and throughout this album, we're talking about sort of retreating from life in general when you're feeling, you know, shit and, uh, and the dreams of lesser men being sort of about the idea of lucid dreaming and about how I, you know, I remember reading about how some people were, you know, in lucid dreaming forums on the internet became sort of obsessed with um, creating rec- recordable, you know, lucid dreams that they could return to because 
their real lives were, you know, less than adequate. And I kind of found something almost romantic about that notion of, you know, dreams being better than reality. But it's kind of sad at the same time because you're ignoring by focusing on dreams, you can't really fix your own reality. And yeah, I guess there's a, there's a few sort of recurring themes throughout it. It's, it's very much an album about loneliness, I think, more than anything else. Um, but that does come through in the sort of escaping into dreams kind of thing. Who's Vivek Gabriel, and why don't you want him to mix and master the album? So Vivek is, uh, again, linked to Mice on Stilts, who are some of our dear friends. Um, basically, I at this point, uh, Mice on Stilts' EP... The first one, um, An Ocean Held Me, which, in my opinion, has one of the most exceptional mixing jobs, especially of a New Zealand artist. And um, at this point, I'd become pretty good friends with uh, uh, Benjamin Morley, who's their frontman, and sort of been to a bunch of their shows. And so sort of my idea was get the same team and try and do ours in the same sense. We used to call ourselves My Son Stilts 2, the louder version. Um, at live shows because, you know, even though Benjamin is an enormous, he's probably a much bigger metal fan than I am, they they very much limit themselves to being kind of a, a low-key low um, band in terms of their heaviness, whereas we, we kind of go, go off it a bit sometimes. Um, but it ended up, you know, it's a different production. I think we're a lot denser. Um, the Mice on Stilts records have quite a lot of space, a lot of uh, wide arrangements, whereas we have, you know, Lots of layers, guitars. Every guitar is triple layered. Every vocal is triple layered. Every saxophone is four layered. So it ended up being quite dense. But I think that got most of the sort of kind of overwhelming atmosphere that we were going for on the record.
in terms of general facts on the album, why did you pick the title? Yeah, so as I was saying, uh, the the title was picked pretty much on a whim in um, in a re- uh, recording session one time. Um, I was uh, doing the vocal tracking for the song "These Things Not Inherent" um, with Tim, our drummer, and I pretty much just sung that line and turned to him and said, "That's a song, that's an album title," and pretty much that that ended the long and th- this would have been you know sort of on barely six months before the album came out um so it had been in the works for four or so years before that before we actually picked a title for it but yeah most of the titles we came up with uh, well i came up with kind of because of the lyrical themes you they border on a bit cheesy at times when you're dealing with dreams and everything um bit of a prog cliche so none of us were completely sold on any title until that one came along and I think it fits with the the overall theme of the album. It's not, you know, it doesn't cover ab- absolutely everything that goes on within the album, but it comes from a song that I think um, has some of the most personal lyrics on the album. And, um, you know, it fits with the dreams theme, but also the theme of, of um, you know, depression and mental illness, which comes throughout the record. Who did you have do the cover art and what was their brief? So the cover art is an English artist called Mark Facey, who we um, I had earmarked probably three years before as the guy who's going to do the cover art. Um, his style is exceptional. Um, he uses uh, sort of I, b- I believe it's a combination of of digital and um, and non digital works to create this kind of blend um, that from certain angles can look like a painting, but when you look closer, you can see that it's, it's digitized and has sort of glitches in it. Um, and to be honest, I, I didn't give him that much of a brief. I just said, your style fits this album. It has, you know, it has that dreamy vibe. It has the sort of otherworldly vibe and his cover art was basically his interpretation of the lyrics. I did give him a suggestion of the color scheme. I wanted that blue color, um, because we'd established a blue color theme with the the single release of the Arrow on single a couple of years earlier, which we quite liked. Um, but other than that, uh, it was all his his interpretation. And pretty much the first draft he sent me, I was like, "Yeah, that's a great idea. Do that. Finish that one." And um, and I'm really stoked with how it came out. Uh, it was kind of funny though, because I I discovered him through the band Dreadnought, um, who were. A, actually a reasonably similar band to us, an American band, um, and he's done all their cover art. And it was after their, the first album he did with them that I that I suggested him to the band and we all agreed. Um, and then when their second album with him doing cover art came out, it had that exact same blue color. And I remember, I've got it on vinyl as well, and I remember when it came out, I was like, damn, he's already used my color scheme. But we got him to do it again, so he did two consecutive blue albums. Um, but he's an, an astonishing artist, and you know, I'd love to use him again, but it sort of depends on the theme of the album though, in terms of the ones we've got coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, just to touch on the band as a, as a live outfit briefly, um, just judging from you know going through your Facebook, it, ju- it seems like there's a lot of kind of Hey, we've got sax here. Oh, we've got, you know, we're stripped down version of the band at this show. How do you kind of approach all these different kind of, I don't know, versions of the band playing live? Mm. So I suppose this was in the last year we've, um, yeah, we've gone around a bit. So the core band is a five piece at the moment. It's um, me on singing and then sort of secondary guitar and piano. And then we have a lead guitarist, a bassist, uh, drummer, and um, saxophonist. That's sort of our core. Uh, but we can all play around with things. Our sax player does keyboards every now and then because we don't necessarily need sax on every song. Um, and then for a couple of shows this year, we brought in um, a violinist uh, who performed on the record for a couple of shows. So, yeah, it does change around. And then one one show, um, Alakar, our saxophonist, couldn't make it, and we just sort of went back to being – and we had already decided before that show that we weren't going to have any keyboards. We were only going to do the guitar song, so it ended up being a four-piece with no keyboards, and it was kind of a funny show being a, being a rock band again. But, yeah, we I, – I quite like the fluidity of arrangements. I think we all – 
the parts can change as we perform them live. Uh, you know, we've recently got a new guitarist and then he plays it slightly differently to our old guitarist. Um, and I think I'm a fan of, of bands when they play live, sort of having a different approach to how they play in the studio. And I think that's obvious with our studio record is that it's, we can't, we can't play it live as it is on the record. It's impossible. And we sort of recorded it knowing that, but the live version has its own flavor, its own kind of different take on the songs, um, which I quite enjoy. I've always liked it when bands, when I see bands live, I, that they sort of change up the, the arrangements of the songs to fit the live um, feel a bit better. I've become quite bored of these bands showing up with click tracks and instruments are all exactly the same as the album. And it's just sort of kind of defeats the purpose of a live show in my opinion. Mm, I, 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 I kind of, I agree with that, but like, and this is just sort of my weird kind of personal sort of feelings. Like it kind of scares me away. Like that, that experience is just there and then it kind of gets just lost. Like that, that experience is once off and only a couple of people, you know, and the, only the people in the room get to hear it. And then, you know, it's just, it, it kind of evaporates. And that, that's kind of my weird sort of neurosis about that kind of thing. Yeah, but I, I love that. I, I think when, when you make a show unique to the room that you're playing in, they feel so much they they will remember that for much longer than if you play the same show to every single person. And, um, you know, there's there's kind of a personal aspect to that. We've never played a single set list that's been the same in the, I mean, in the, the years that we've been playing live. Uh, and for a long while, we had sort of seven consecutive shows in which we played a new song at each one, which was very daunting. But um, uh, the, the band definitely don't like the fact that I constantly bring in new music for them to learn. Uh, but, you know, it's, yeah, there, there's a little bit of a... Perhaps because we're pretty much only playing in, in Auckland, we're playing to a similar group of people uh, pretty much every time we've been playing. Um, so we know that if we change up the the show, then you know they, they will have probably seen us one other time. Perhaps if we get to a point at which we're touring, we may strip back on the the dramatic changes. But I think it keeps the shows interesting and. Um, I definitely know that as a as a audience member, I've been part of some incredibly special shows because of the fact that that the artist has made it incredibly unique to to us. Uh, we saw um, we being most of the band saw um, Mount Airy perform in in Auckland, and he played a song that he's never played since, and um, that has made that show so much more special to me because I know that I was there for that song and. I have a recording of it and no one else has ever heard it. And I think that's awesome. And, you know, kind of giving that to the audience is, is, you know, something that I'd like to be able to do in terms of uniqueness. I want to ask you a couple of personal questions to finish this off. What was it originally attracted you to progressive music? Um, I guess, I guess sort of my, I, I sort of mentioned it before. I'm a big fan of songs that uh, sort of take you on a journey and you know go from one place to another but i think uh, i'm always the pr- progressive music does that as one of its staples but um it always takes an uh, songs go in interesting directions um i think my my fandom of progressive music is very divided um i used to write about uh, as a blogger in the progressive scene and i always had a reputation for having quite controversial opinions um as far as not liking a whole lot of staple progressive bands because i think there's a fine balance between uh, challenging norms and structures in an interesting way and challenging them for the sake of challenging them and for me i'm not a big fan of technically complex music kind of uh, ironically it may may seem um, I prefer music that's, I think, structurally complex than than sort of instrumentally complex. Um, it's why I think Stephen Wilson and Porcupine Tree are a huge, uh, you know, touchstone for me influence-wise because while he is progressive in his songwriting, Stephen never lets go of his emotional core. And throughout pretty much all of his records, no matter how prog he gets, he always will keep you know, quite honest songwriting in the center of it all and then add everything on on top of that. And I guess, you know, what what you know, what what drew me to progressive music is, you know, 
there's a range of feelings and there's sort of unique ways of, uh, of tackling those feelings. Um, and I suppose it's just the, the sort of, it is a, it's a hub for, for creative structuring and creative ways about going, going to through songwriting that, um, you know, my, my original progressive links were from Muse and all the standard bands in the mid two thousands, obviously. So I was going to ask you about this um, in terms of your writing. Like, talk a little bit about how you got into that and how you, I don't know, just in general, like, uh, you know, your thoughts about kind of writing about um, music. So, yeah, so I basically, I've always been a pretty obsessive music listener. I still am. I just don't write about it anymore. Um, but I will, you know, from from high school through my first couple of years of university, I consistently wrote uh, music reviews, got to a point in which, you know, I, I you know, actually got um, promos sent to me and I sort of dropped it at the end of 2016 because it's not worth it. <laughs> um, it's a lot of time and you don't really get uh, the credit you deserve. And I mostly wanted to focus on my own music. But having said that, I think it has played an absolutely integral role in my composition in terms of learning how to compose because um had i not spent all those you know hours writing reviews of music and studying music and and it's more about sort of internalizing what your own biases are and why you prefer certain things i feel like some some music critics these days obsess about being right or being on brand or everything when really music criticism should be about understanding yourself and understanding and hoping that other people have similar biases to you which i'm sure they do and so when i reviewed these bands i would always look at why i didn't like something why i did like something what about each song or album did i enjoy and i think you when you do that you hone in on several recurring themes basically and um and i i noticed that about the the song structuring thing i'm a big fan of interesting song structures you know when a song moves in a certain direction that makes you go oh that's not what i expected but it, in a good way and i definitely bring this into my songwriting often if i've written a small section i will think what would be an interesting thing that comes next if i put myself in my music listening shoes i would go oh that's interesting um as as well as sort of making sure that you know transitions aren't too jarring, um, you're not you know just meandering on in one direction for the sake of it, um, and certain things like instrumentation. Um, I think you know became a big fan of saxophones by listening to music. Um, I think I became aware of how underused saxophone is in rock music, and in fact underused in every genre of music that isn't jazz. Um, I think that every time I hear a saxophone in a non-jazz-related genre, I think it enhances the music a lot. Um, and as well as string instruments, I think string instruments are not uh, string instruments have been used in uh, in terms of violins have been used in rock and metal music a lot. But I've always I think they've been used in quite a I, I'm not a big fan of the symphonic metal style of string use, and I always thought that it was tacky and lame, and you could never have good strings. But uh, you know, listening to a lot of music just brought me to several black metal bands that use strings in a really interesting way, um, and so that's where I'm trying to come in with using a single violin rather than using an orchestra, which a lot of bands tend to do. And so I think you know, studying music and reviewing music shaped my songwriting and allowed me to write music without really having much theory backing in terms of, you know, going to music school or anything like that, because my theory was just understanding from listening to thousands and thousands of albums. I'm up to, I'm, I hit 6,000 albums last week and I was very, felt very smug. So it definitely has been, well, it was definitely a worthwhile thing, but I don't think I could go back to doing it again. Mm, how do you keep track of the albums that you've listened to? I have an enormous spreadsheet. Um, yes. <laughs> one of my proudest, um, it, yeah, it's genuinely, it's, it is, I've probably spent, you know, a uh, few thousand hours on it. It's um, miserably depressing. I also have a very active rate of music account, which is where I sort of publicly log them. It's often where I discover new music from. Um, I'm currently going through a, a listening spree in which I, I pick albums from genres on the Rat Your Music site that I haven't heard any albums from 
just to see if I like that genre. So I, it, it means I'm going from like gypsy jazz to like gothic country in, in a week just because I've never heard any albums in those genres. I just want to check out whether or not I like them. Most of them I don't really, but I quite like gothic country. I've, I've you know, got, got big into King Dude recently, um, which is kind of funny. And I'm, you know, working in a coffee cart in a train station playing all this random crap <laughs> is quite amusing. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about sort of the saxophone, one person sort of comes to mind. Obviously, I'm not very familiar with a lot of kind of jazz or any music that would involve saxophone, but um, John Zorn, you listen to some of his stuff. Um, you know, some of, you can take or leave, but it's more straight stuff. You you kind of get a, a taste of the incredible character that the saxophone can bring to music. Yeah, I think it's well. If you look at, at why. An instrument, in terms of canonical instruments, why guitar and piano have been staples for you know decades now and will be for a very long time is because they are versatile enough to be used loudly and softly. Particularly guitar, with electric guitar, you know, an electric guitar fits into you know a very solemn, soft song as much as it fits into a metal song. And one instrument that does that very, very well that has not been utilized is saxophone. And I'm going to be very hot take on here. The main reason it isn't as popular is it's because it's a lot harder to play. If it was an easier instrument to play, it would be much bigger. But because it's quite difficult to, you know, anyone can start learning guitar. It's quite easy to become a beginner. But I've tried started to learn saxophone, and it's, nah, it's hard. <laughs> and, and it really takes some effort to get above that first bump. But you can use it in heavy music. You know, John Zorn, uh, Free Jazz, um, one of the bands that really – sort of exposed how amazing saxophone can be and heavy music was a band called Merkaba, who are Polish, uh, who are an instrumental band, play this kind of sludge metal, really riffy, heavy stuff, but it's all based around the saxophone. And it's so obvious how it can be used in the heavy sections, but also you bring it back and have, you know, you know, light saxophone and it works beautifully in ambient music. I think the the timbre of the instrument is phenomenal. When you add a lot of reverb to it, it works really well. Um, and so because it has that duality of being able to be really grunty and heavy and fit with metal music and being able to fit with ambient sort of dreamy music, it, it makes sense as an instrument that can work in pretty much any, any genre. And I think we've seen in the increase of uh, a lot of jazz rap and hip hop recently as well, a lot of hip hop producers are realizing, you know, that it's a really interesting instrument and can be, um, obviously it's been part of jazz for uh, hip hop for a while in terms of the nineties jazz rap albums, but you know, Kendrick Lamar and, um, even New Zealand's own Avantel bowling club have sort of pushed it even further into the mainstream. When, when did you start playing musical instruments and why did you stick with it? Uh, I didn't really, to be honest. I I started. I mean, I I came from a musical family in the sense that um, we were encouraged to be in choirs from a young age. Um, both both of my parents uh, sort of have a have a strong instrument an interest in music, but neither of them, you know, were really that passionate about it. Um, but you know, learning piano from a very young age and being in a choir from a young age sort of does teach you some of those really basic. Um, intuitions about music but it wasn't really until I was about 14 or 15 that I sort of decided to take it seriously I picked up guitar at 14 never took it seriously I'm still awful um, I struggle through most live shows as the rest of my band knows very well um, and piano slightly better but not not much better I think um, they're really uh, instruments that I use as a method to, to write music more than anything. Um, you know, I'd say that I'm first and foremost a songwriter, very distantly second. I can play piano and guitar. Um, but yeah, probably about 14, 15 was when I started, when I decided that I wanted to be in a band and wanted to make music and sort of use this fleeting knowledge of piano from when I was very young to, to bring that back in. I've never really had lessons properly. I had guitar lessons for about five or six months, basically when I was starting to write, even as the light grows, and they were, you know, kind of useful. But um, I'm pretty proud to have been nearly all self-taught in all disciplines of music. Other than that, mm, and how did you go about developing your early songwriting abilities? It's just, I think it's just uh, listening to your own. It, as I was talking about the um, 
you know, reviewing and how that influenced my songwriting. I think it's that, but taking that to your own songs. And Dennis was a huge part of it, I will say, because I think I struggled in the beginning. I struggled with um, sort of subconsciously plagiarizing other people. It's a big thing that, that new songwriters have in which you come up with an idea and then, you know, a few weeks later you realize you've nicked it from somewhere. And that used to really bug me when I was young. And I think when it was Dennis sending me ideas, even if it was just like eight bars of a, of a melody or a riff, because it's not my idea, it's something that he's done. I'd listen to that and I'd go, go into my headspace and think, where would this fit in the song? Is this an intro? Is this a chorus? Is this an outro? Where, you know, what, what would I do next after this? And from that, you know, I think, so three of the songs on, on the album being Dreams, uh, Era One, and The Regressor were all developed in that way. They all started from ideas that Dennis had and sort of stretched out, um, including you know, most of the first three minutes of The Regressor is Dennis's composition. And so from that, I sort of gained that intuition. And then as I started to come up with my own ideas that weren't subconsciously stolen from other people, um, I became more confident in, in writing my own music. And it's pretty much just gone from strength to strength since then. Um, I, you know, pretty much, if you, if you write out your own stuff and listen to it as if you were listening to someone else's music and sort of think about things that you would do better, it can, um, you know, snowball into improving. And then, you know, like anything else, it's just practice and about, um, taking different things. Every time I, I hear a sort of song that I think is interesting, I think about why it's interesting, whether or not I can apply that technique or that sort of style to one of my songs and then, you know, go from there. Mm-hmm. And what, what about singing? When do you start that? I mean, I was always, yeah, as I said, I was in, uh, in choirs from young age. Um, I've, I, th- I think I've always been a bit of a, a middling singer. I think um, still am. The main, the main reason I'm singing is because I don't think I could trust anyone else to sing my own parts. And at the moment, I think I'm. We've never, we've never really had anyone else come and and you know outright say, "Oh, look, I'm a better singer." I think Tim is probably a better singer than me, but he plays drums, so therefore he can't sing. So, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I've definitely been working on my voice. I'm I'm in a in a choir again now for the first time in ten or so years. Um, but I, I've always felt that it's something I do need to work on um, because uh, it may become our ceiling in terms of uh, the music that I'm trying to make. But like anything, you can practice it. But despite being singing for a long time, I think it's something I definitely need to work on. And one last question. What have you been listening to, watching or reading lately? Oh, far too much. eh? (laughs) Um, uh, In terms of reading, I've just finished reading Dune by Frank Herbert or just a few, few weeks ago, um, which, yeah, I think, I think is something that I've been meaning to read for gosh, 15 years and I've sort of forced myself into finally reading it because I know that the film version is coming out soon. And I got to say, after reading it, I'm not convinced they're going to be able to do it, turn it into a film. It's too difficult, but I wish them luck. Um, so a fantastic book really in terms of some of the, the grand fiction of the, the 20th century, I think the, the law and the, the universe that Frank Herbert creates is one of the most compelling and unique, um, comparing it to other sort of grand works of fiction like lord of the rings um it has it is it is comparable in my opinion in terms of the scope and the the kind of the way that he writes religions and things into the book is fascinating um for listening as i said i've been listening to my current list is going through a bunch of obscure genres and it's quite fun um although sometimes you look at it and you go gosh do i really want to be listening to that right now Mm, maybe not um but uh on repeat um i've actually been listening to um in rainbows by radiohead a bit recently mostly because it's one of the last radiohead albums i haven't got into properly and i gotta say i don't know if i get it (laughs) they're one of my favorite bands but it's 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 evading me at this point i think it's okay but yeah other than that i sort of 
have a several several lists that I sort of trundle through. And I haven't been watching much at all recently. I'm not that big on, on watching things, if I'm honest. 